Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. I always say there's nothing better than the Monday after a major, those four times per year. But you know what? This feels pretty close. Why? Because we got the 57th rendition of Rafael Nadal versus Novak Djokovic in the 2021 Rome Final. And it was Rafa pulling their head-to-head to within one match, winning his 10th Rome title in three sets, 7-5-1-6-6-3. A match that was more competitive than the 2020 Roland Garros final. And later on in the show, I will discuss what were the similarities uh, between today's match and last year's RG final. What were the differences? I want to highlight a stretch from two all in the third set where Rafa Nadal went on a huge run and really wrestled the match away from Novak. How did he do it? I'm going to break it down in depth. French Open power rankings coming up at the end of the show as well, right after this. I want to tell you about the sponsor of today's video, Tennis Clash. I've really always thought that tennis needs more great games. Well, this is one of them. It's here. It's a free mobile 1v1 tennis game with super high-end graphics and just a fun playing experience. You can play live against real players all around the world, and there's a lot of cool RPG elements that'll just get you hooked. It's addicting. It's on Android, and it's on iOS. I have a Google Pixel here, so sometimes I get left out of the fun, but not with Tennis Clash. So make sure you download it free from the links in the description box down below to support my channel and get 200 gems and 500 gold. If you don't want to listen to me, just check out the app stores. Tennis Clash has great ratings, 4.3 in the Play Store, and it's become a massive worldwide hit with more than 60 million downloads worldwide. What I love about this game, and, and really what I love about tennis as a sport, is that I can play with different characters, and I get to decide what ability I want to focus on, forehand, backhand, movement, you know, do you know what you should do? Bring your favorite player out of retirement. Whoever your favorite player is, right? Mine is David Ferrer. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to jack up the agility, jack up the endurance, and, uh, you know, a little bit towards the forehand. Let's let's bring him out of retirement. Let's, let's just play like Ferrer. You can do that with however you want to play. So again, give this a try. Play against real players in the world's most famous tennis arenas. Make sure you download it for free using the link down in the description to support my channel and get 200 gems and 500 gold. That'll start you off in a better position. You want to be on that Coco Golf track. You want to be on that Yannick Sinner track. So make sure if you're going to download the game, which you should, use the link in the description and get 200 gems and 500 gold for supporting my channel. Good luck, and I will see you out there. Remember to grind. 
Now, I would be remiss to get right into the final without addressing the unbelievable, breathtaking tennis that these two had to play just to get to the Rome final, which, by the way, continues to be just uh, a place where the cream rises to the top. And Exhibit A is the fact that there hasn't been a Rome final without Nadal or Djokovic since 2005. Complete absurdity, and these two have played so well at this event. But uh, magic from both of them. I'll start with Nadal real quick. He had to be sharp right away because his first match against Yannick Sinner was really, really high-quality tennis. But he did get, uh, get through it in straight sets. The same could not be said for his second round match against Denis Shapovalov, which uh, was looking like a defeat, to be completely honest with you. It was looking dire for Rafa. He lost the first set. He was down three love in the second set. He had to save match points in the third set, and somehow he got through it. In the next, in his next match, he... Uh, got to play Alexander Zverev, who is also coming off of a long marathon match, and got revenge from his Madrid defeat in, again, much slower conditions. The Zverev head-to-head, -head, uh, it swings back in favor of Nadal after Zverev won three in a row in very favorable conditions. Still, great win for Nadal. He really found his groove. And then in the semifinal, he ran through Riley Opelka in straight sets. But that Shapovalov match was as much of a near-death experience as you can get and was really a testament to Nadal's fighting spirit and his mental strength. Djokovic would have to show off the same uh, attributes, especially on Saturday. On Saturday, after his quarterfinal match with Stefano Tsitsipas was partially uh, rained out or postponed on Friday uh, and moved to Saturday, and Novak had to wake up Saturday morning Finished the Tsitsipas match, which was an incredible match. Stefanos served for the third set. Uh, Novak played unbelievable tennis, breaking with Tsitsipas serving for the match, um, and it was it was really quite something. And I'm sorry, it wasn't it wasn't the third set; it was the second set. Um, and then he had to come back that night and play Lorenzo Sinego which was looking like that could be a straightforward match, but Sinego steals the second set, and Djokovic does such a good job bouncing back in the third. Uh, he did spend a long time on court. He was having to battle a, a very partial crowd um, facing the Italian once again, uh, but that was a two-hour, 45-minute match, so two incredibly long matches coming in to this final. And of course, I am going to get the question. I'm going to get the complaints from Novak fans. They're going to say, Gil, it's the Rome scheduling. It never gives Novak Djokovic a chance. This is unfair. This is the reason Nadal won. And look, I understand the frustration if you are a Novak Djokovic fan. It's extremely unfortunate considering that a very similar thing happened in 2019 when Novak had to play really kind of long brutal night sessions on Saturday night and then play the final on Sunday right away that morning without a lot of rest. So I do understand the frustration there. Uh, but my policy, and it's always been my policy if you're new to Monday Match Analysis, is that the only time that I really uh, discuss fatigue at length when I'm breaking down a match and the outcome of a match is when 
there is visible evidence of a player fatiguing at points in the match, whether that be the start of the match, not getting the body going, and maybe Novak looked a hair slow, uh, but nothing extreme enough where I did not think that that was one of the keys to the match. With that being said, I want to give Djokovic massive props, massive credit. After losing a long physical first set, after the Saturday that he had, he very well could have thrown in the white towel. He had a built-in excuse, and the fact that he kept fighting in that second set and actually won at 6-1 despite Nadal's level drop was, to me, unbelievably impressive. He deserves massive credit for not giving up in that second set, forcing a third, and fighting quite valiantly for uh, for a very long time in this match. All right. Um, let's get to it. Again, the crux of my breakdown uh, is going to be a part of the match which really swung the match and and changed the match uh, in a in a really big way. From fifteen thirty at two all, Rafa Nadal is serving in the third set. Keep in mind again, he had just dropped the second set uh, six one. And I will go back. I'll talk about the first set, but first I want to talk about what's most important, which is the third set. So again, two all, 15-30. The next 17 points, 14 of them are won by Nadal. This is the stretch that really iced the match and put it away for Rafa. And 11 of those 14 points won by Nadal actually fall into three outcomes. Three very specific and distinct outcomes. Uh, Djokovic missing backhands after getting his contact point broken. So I, I, I want to call them uh, quasi-unforced errors, but really forced errors on the Djokovic backhand. Nadal winning from extreme defensive positions. Uh, scenarios where it looks like Djokovic has command of the point and Nadal is able to steal those points away from Djokovic from those positions and Djokovic missing uh, first serve returns uh, that are caused by overambition. So I'm not talking about Nadal hitting a great first serve and Djokovic on the stretch unable to make the return. I'm talking about returns that Djokovic times well, lines up, reaches, hits the center of the strings, and still misses because he's trying to make it too good. Those three outcomes, backhand errors, Nadal counterattack slash defense, and Djokovic missed returns, first serve returns, those three outcomes can account for 11 of the 14 points won by Nadal in that crucial stretch. And then if we stretch that out to the end of the match, I found 14 instances of those three outcomes in the final five games of the match from 2-all to 6-3, ultimately, when Nadal won the set. So now, let me go in uh, in more depth and break down the reason why those three outcomes emerged with a lot of frequencies. So again, the first outcome is Djokovic missing high-risk backhands. If you look at Novak's backhand errors in this stretch... They are all one of two things. Uh, they are either 
above chest high or chest high or above for Novak. I'm not going to say above the shoulders. That would be disingenuous. They're not all above the shoulders, but none of them are waist height where Novak wants them. None of them are are really comfortably between the hip and shoulders. They're all uh, bouncing up to an uncomfortable level for Novak. Some are above the shoulders, above the head. And uh, in that in that respect, Nadal's cross-court forehand to the Djokovic backhand can break the contact point with height, which it can't do or it does not do uh, quite as easily or nearly as easily on other surfaces. The second scenario is when Djokovic needs to hit on the rise, play it on the rise, and try to play a strong enough backhand on the rise from the baseline that he actually protects that shot and remains unattackable. It's a difficult thing to do. Novak, again, he's great at it. He's very good. He's excellent. But he's better on a hard court. When the bounce is always true, and when it's a little bit... uh, when his um, when his flat backhand, his flat stroke, which I'll get into a little bit more, is a little bit more potent, doesn't need to be quite as good. When you're hitting on the rise, it has to be a little bit flatter. No one really hits great topspin on the rise, and that's just down to the physics of it. When the ball is rising, you really got to hit through it and, and hit it pretty flat. And the fact that the clay court doesn't reward that, it makes Novak have to hit it Uh, even a little bit better when he's playing on the rise, not to mention it's more difficult on a clay court. So when when Nadal hits his cross-court forehand, as long as it's not incredibly short in the court, he's forcing Djokovic to do one of two things. He's either forcing Djokovic to hit the backhand high above his contact point, or he's forcing Djokovic to hit the backhand on the rise. You are not seeing a lot of of scenarios that you get on lower bouncing courts where Djokovic is neither hitting the backhand on the rise or hitting the backhand above the height of his chest. That is when the Novak backhand is just going to be rock solid. It's never going to miss. Okay, so that's the first outcome. The second outcome is Rafa winning from defensive positions. He started to do that really well uh, on this stretch of points. And part of it is just Nadal's unbelievable clay court movement. His scrambling is so much better on clay. He's able to steal so many points, counterattack so much uh, better when he has his uh, his clay court movement and he's able to slide into shots and and use his, his unbelievable upper body strength to, to muster as much as he does on the ball um, on the stretch and use his high margin, heavy topspin defense or his forehand and backhand slice defense, which is also really good. But it's also about Djokovic's forehand and the fact that when the court slows down his, his penetrating ball, uh, Novak is not quite as good of a finisher, especially on his forehand. He hits with less net clearance. There are a couple forehands that Djokovic hits in this sequence where Novak's in charge of the rally. He's really in a good place in the point, uh, and he clips the net tape. A lot of those are on sitters. You're not going to see Nadal do that as much. His When he when Nadal is attacking a, a sitter forehand, even deep in the court, on a clay court, you're generally going to see him hit that shot with a lot of margin. 
And you see Novak's margins on a sitter like we saw at 30-40, break point to all. The margin isn't that big. Novak clips the tape on that one. And now another key point with Djokovic serving at 2-3, love 30. And Novak's going to hit a forehand inside in. Plenty of time to line up this forehand. And Djokovic clips the tape. Nadal's average net clearance almost a meter in this match. Djokovic is much lower, and he becomes more prone to blowing these forehands when he has plenty of time. And this is, again, it's a little bit unlucky because it hits the tape, and then Nadal's able to counter with a, a strong forehand to take control of the point. Uh, but nonetheless, that's not uh, a shot that, that's not a point that Djokovic wants to be losing from that position. Um, and then you have a couple of beautiful passing shots by Nadal, um, one on the forehand, one on the backhand, and he, he's got the best passing shots in the game, and it's only better on clay. It's so hard to approach Nadal on clay, but you see Novak losing some points from winning positions. It's always a key in this matchup on clay, and both of them are going to do that to each other, but in this stretch in the third set, you see Nadal doing it to Djokovic more often than not. The last one is Djokovic missing backhand returns, and one of them is actually a forehand, but as you're going to see, um, and, and as I said earlier, these returns are being missed because they are over-ambitious, because Novak is trying to thread the needle. Uh, there's a couple of times where he's just going for, for too much depth. He's hitting the center of the strings, and it's going long. And that happens, and that's a good miss sometimes, but it, it happened way, way too often. Um, and the reason for this was, was pretty simple. The prolific plus-one forehand tennis that Nadal was playing was putting enough pressure on Djokovic to try to go for too much on his returns. It's really the only explanation. And before I get into Nadal's plus one play, forehand plus one play, because it was such a key in this match, probably the number one key, uh, let me just point out that with Nadal serving for the match, Djokovic missed two backhand returns long. This is at 5-3. I mean... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We saw already Djokovic come back against Tsitsipas, who served for the match in the quarterfinal. Uh, we have seen Nadal recently struggle to to close out some matches. He served for some matches and uh, hasn't reached the finish line in a couple of them. For Novak to give Rafa two free points here, that's so un-Djokovic-like. So un-Djokovic-like. He wouldn't do that against other players. But Nadal, I think, really got to him in this match. And uh, ultimately, does no, you know, does Novak wish he was better? Yes. But I think a lot of the credit goes goes uh, to Nadal because he was unbelievably dominant on his first ball forehands. And Djokovic is doing everything he can to try um, to try to hide from it, to try to hit a good enough return that Nadal is not taking immediate control of the point. In that same breath, I want to point out 
that this is an example of the same problem persisting from Nadal's straightforward victory over Novak Djokovic in the 2020 French Open final when points zero through four shots were dominated by Nadal, when the serve return dynamic was demolition in favor of Nadal, zero through four shots in the French Open final were 53 to 25 Rafa. Points zero through four shots in this match were 50 to 36 in favor of Nadal. How about that, folks? 50 to 36. Uh, forehand winners were 26 to 11 for Nadal. Uh, the first set in particular was really a serve plus forehand clinic by Nadal. I thought that Djokovic was great from neutral positions in the first set. He was doing really good things in the rallies. But the reason that really didn't matter is because Nadal made 84% of his first serves. And when he made those first serves, he hit 86% forehands on the very next ball. Uh, but context here, context, context, context. Weren't we just talking in Madrid about how Nadal's forehand uh, his serve plus one game was letting him down, that his forehand just wasn't potent enough to finish Alexander Zverev, that he wasn't winning his first serve points because he wasn't able to take control of the point after landing his first serve. That was the problem just a week ago. So to see this transformation, to see Rafa Nadal come out in this match in the first set here and to to hit, make 86% of his first serves and to hit really great forehands behind it and for that to really carry him through the set because Djokovic was so good in the rallies. Wow. That, um, that is just uh, an example of what makes Nadal so incredible. Uh, the, the work that he does on, on the practice court to rapidly work out whatever is not going in his favor and to correct his his weaknesses in just record speed, I just thought that it was pretty amazing that the very thing that abandoned him in Madrid and led to his demise was the same attribute, the same component that was so starkly excellent against Djokovic in the first set. So that's the biggest positive coming into Roland Garros and the biggest concern for Djokovic in this matchup against Nadal on clay is that the short points still were lopsided in favor of the Spaniard. And for Nadal, the positive is that the uh, serve plus one play is back because it was uh, absent, especially the serve part. The serve especially, but even the forehand, the inconsistencies with the forehand had really marred Nadal throughout the clay court season. Um, I do want to talk about some positives or uh, one positive in particular for Novak Djokovic heading into Roland Garros because uh, he was a lot closer. He did win the second set 6-1. I want to talk about Djokovic's forehand, the spin rates on his forehand. I'd really like to know if this week in Rome he had a higher spin rate on the forehand than he has in recent years at clay events. It looked to me from the naked eye that Novak 
was uh, accelerating a little bit more on his forehand, was using his footwork to run around his backhand at a uh, much more aggressively, like he was doing a little bit earlier on in his career. I think in the in the twenty in twenty eleven especially um, through twenty sixteen, I think on on clay courts he was really looking for his forehand instead of playing the backhand whenever he could. And I'm seeing that. I'm seeing him swing faster on his forehand. And the result is that he doesn't need to hit it quite as flat to try to be offensive on this surface, which is a really, really good sign for him. It leads to that sustained aggression. And that is what I really liked from Novak all week, is that I thought that he was sustaining aggression from the baseline, hitting uh, potent angled forehands uh, pretty well this week. Now, you compare it to Nadal, and maybe it's not quite as good. In fact, it's not. And he only hit 11 forehand winners in this match. There are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is uh, Nadal's returning. Part of it is Nadal's movement, his defense. Um, But still... I thought all in all, Djokovic was hitting his forehand well. And 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 I want to say that winners don't tell the full story. Djokovic did an excellent job at pinning Nadal in his backhand corner in this match repeatedly, making Nadal uncomfortable in that backhand corner and forced a lot of errors there, which at the end of the day, something that Jim Courier has been saying a ton recently on, on Tennis Channel, it, it, it's really... To force an error is as good as a winner. I know that we keep separate stats, but it's just as good. And I agree with that. And I think Djokovic forced tons of errors by um, really, really pinning Nadal in that backhand corner, making making him hit on the run, open stance, two-handed backhands. Uh, but Djokovic handled both cross-court patterns very well in this match. In rallies over nine shots, Djokovic had a 20-5 to five edge. And I think that shows that he was uh, he was very, very comfortable in neutral situations here. He protected his backhand very well for portions of the match um, and trapped Nadal in that backhand corner. I, I thought that Djokovic handled himself um, handled himself very well in the baseline rallies, which is uh, a good sign for him, but he he must figure out the um, the serve return battle. And it's tough right now. Right now, I don't see, and I don't want to get into it right now, how can Djokovic beat Nadal on clay is the question. I'm not going to delve into it right now. Uh, but there were positives and negatives in this match. He handled himself well in the in the rallies. That's the positive. The negative is that he's still getting dominated in the short points, and he's not winning from extreme defensive positions or extreme offensive positions as much as Nadal is winning from those positions. Uh, let's hit the DB4 stat of the week, and then we will go finally to the French Open power rankings. For more tennis history, visit www.db4tennis.com. This one is about our final in Rome, Nadal and his incredible path to the final, his difficult path to the final, trying, arduous, until the semifinal. That was kind of a breeze against Riley Opelka, Uh, but he improved his stats round by round by round, uh, so he entered this final confidently. An interesting tidbit about this final, Nadal's first serve would have been 78% in the final if you take away that second set. 
and the breakpoint saved would have been would have been eighty three percent. So uh, Nadal on serve, it, it just got better and better and better. Let's take a look at the past six Rome finals between Nadal and Djokovic, and there's a common theme here. These are getting longer and longer and longer. The first three meetings were straight set matches. Nadal taking two of the first three. Since then, 2014, 2019, and 2021, all three set encounters and more and more time spent on the court. Two hours, 19 minutes, two hours, 25 minutes. And finally here in 2021, two hours, 49 minutes. For Nadal and Djokovic, Rafa the champion, he has won four out of the six Rome finals between these two. One quick tidbit to just uh, piggyback off of DB4 Tennis and, and the great insights there is that since 2017, Nadal has not lost to Djokovic on clay. Djokovic has not lost to Nadal off clay. So it's becoming... Look, it is probably the greatest rivalry in the history of men's tennis. Now, you might have your favorite rivalry or a rivalry you like better, and that's totally up for debate. But in terms of how many times they've played and how many epics they've played, it'll be hard to make an argument for other uh, any other rivalry. The only knock is that it has been at times predictable. That is the only knock on this rivalry, and it's been true since 2017. Neither player are able to really beat each other on their favorite surface. So that's just a quick tidbit. Uh, it is now time for the French Open Power Rankings. It is May 16th, 2021. Just a quick look. I'll flash up on the screen of the May 9th French Open Power Rankings. And for those of you listening on the uh, podcast, I will uh, make sure to talk about the, the, the movement. All right, here we go. May 16th. Next out, first of all, Diego Schwartzman knocked out of the French Open power rankings. He was at the seven position last week. I was really giving Schwartzman the benefit of the doubt. I was leaving him in the power rankings. He was the uh, last year's Rome finalist, RG semifinalist. That was giving him a lot of leeway, a long leash, but I just can't do it anymore. Schwartzman cannot be in the top 10 after his... Really uh, alarming loss to Felix Ojealiasim, who wasn't in good form either, and looked. Uh, I watched the match. He he looked very uh, void of confidence, and the alarm bells are ringing for Diego Schwartzman, who has a losing record in the European clay court swing in 2021. Daniil Medvedev could not beat Aslan Karatsev. Uh, again, he was mentally checked out. He was not determined to win. He was feeling sorry for himself. He was not competing. So, of course, Daniil Medvedev remains outside of the French Open power rankings. Aslan Karatsev is actually in the power rankings. That is a, a mistake, so ignore that. Uh, Pablo Carina Busta is, is, uh, had to withdraw with an injury, so I'll keep him in the next out. And then Roger Federer, we are waiting on Geneva. All right, let's move on to number 10. It is Yannick Sinner. Um, Sinner has had brutal draws here um, in the European clay court swing. You got to feel bad for him. He had to play Djokovic and Monte Carlo. He had to play Nadal um, here in in Rome. Barcelona, he happened to go far, made the semis, lost to Tsitsipas, and in Madrid suffered the only, the only one that you can consider 
an upset defeat, which was against Alexi Popperin. I think if you watched the match, you understood why Sinner lost. So he comes in at number 10. Tough draws. I still think he's dangerous. At number 9 is Aslan Karatsev. He breaks in back inside the French Open power rankings. He was in it. Then he went back out after Madrid. Now he's back in at number 9, uh, the Australian Open semifinalist. I'm excited to see what he can do at the French. At number eight is Andre Rublev. He moves up one spot due to Diego Schwartzman dropping out. Um, Rublev lost to um, to Lorenzo Sinego. Um, I I got to be honest with you. I missed the match. Didn't see it. But obviously, Sinego was playing great tennis this week. Uh, so um, I won't penalize Rublev too much. He comes in at number eight. At number seven is Matteo Berrettini. Certainly came into Rome maybe a bit fatigued after making the final in Madrid, but he got through a, a tough opening round match against Nicolas uh, Basilashvili, then one another, was handled by Stefano Tsitsipas quite easily, but uh, still, I, I don't think you could have expected much more out of Berrettini this week. Definitely uh, feeling fatigued, and he's had a great clay court season. Should be somewhat dangerous at the French, but his game is a little bit limited at the same time. At number six is Kaspar Ruud. He did not play Rome. He will play in Geneva, and he could meet Roger Federer, so let's see how he fares in that, but Ruud will stay put at number six after skipping Rome and uh, resting the body. At number five is Dominic Team. He moves down one spot from number four. Look, there's no shame in his loss to Lorenzo Sinego, which was an incredible match. Went to a third set tiebreak, very entertaining, but he still is clearly off. Something is wrong with Dominic Team. His body language was very negative, even up a break in the third set, uh, was acting like he was losing the match when he wasn't. And then when he hit these incredible shots to even up the the third set tiebreak, no fist pumps, no positivity. Clearly, he doesn't really have the uh, the mental spark at this juncture. The question is, will he find it in time for the French Open? But he gets bumped down one spot in the power rankings for now. At number four is Alexander Zverev. He surpasses Dominic Team because I think it's fair to say he's in much better form. And while his French Open results do not match what Team has done, Zverev has become pretty consistent in the best of five format. Pretty much an automatic quarterfinal after being a an automatic upset alert early in his career. At number three is Stefano Tsitsipas. You got to drop him down one spot after his razor thin loss to Novak Djokovic. So Djokovic finally leapfrogs him. Comes in at number two. Look, um, it's close, I think, between these two. Tsitsipas and Djokovic, very, very close. Um, I think this matchup could go either way if they played tomorrow in Paris. Uh, but given Djokovic's intangibles, given his trajectory of improvement throughout clay court season, given his pedigree at the French and just the, the mental edge that he seems to have over everyone on tour, but that includes Tsitsipas. I think he belongs at number two. Even if Tsitsipas's skills match up to Djokovic or maybe are even better than Djokovic. Finally, at number one is still the king of clay, Rafael Nadal, who comes out of this clay court swing with uh, two titles, right? Not too shabby. Look, it, it was a turbulent clay court season. He was struggling. Nadal struggled with his game at, at many, many points.
Uh, but he wore his heart on his sleeve from start to finish. He continued to get better and better and better. Um, other than the blip against Alexander Zverev in Madrid. And ultimately, uh, it couldn't have culminated in, in a much better way for Nadal. Um, beating Novak in the final of Rome, just like 2019, it sets him up to be the French Open favorite once again in 2021. That'll do it for uh, this episode of Monday Match Analysis. Remember, I'm available on all podcast platforms. Make sure you're following me at Gil underscore gross on Twitter. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallin' drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallin' wherever you get your podcasts.